Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. For this episode of the SRS podcast, we will be taking a bit of a deviation from our traditional episode format and focus. Rather than centering on a specific sleep and or circadian research article, this episode will be centered on a discussion with the editor-in-chief of the Sleep Journal, Dr. Alan Pack. The episode is not only purposed to introduce you to the current editor-in-chief of the Sleep Journal, but also to overview the journal broadly, including elements like its history, scope, mission, recent changes, and future intentions. Additionally, we cover topics related to the editorial ecosystem, the post-submission process from the journal's perspective, and current challenges with the peer review process, among other things. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Alan Pack. Dr. Alan Pack is the John Miklo Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He graduated from medical school in Glasgow and worked at the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow before relocating to the USA in 1976. Dr. Pack was the founding director of the Center for Sleep and Circadian Neurobiology and the Division of Sleep Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Pack's current main area of focus is on functional genomic approaches to sleep and its disorders. He uses mouse models in his work and translates findings to humans. A major component of his research relates to the pathogenesis and consequences of the common disorder, obstructive sleep apnea, and to the effects of sleep loss. He is engaged in genetic studies, has established international consortia, and has a major commitment to research training. Also, Dr. Pack serves as the current editor-in-chief for the Sleep Journal. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Alan Pack. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Alan Pack, welcome to the Sleep Research Society podcast. As I expressed already in our kind of pre-show chat, uh, I selfishly feel very blessed to have you here today, digitally, of course. Um, It's a great opportunity to actually meet you. I've been foolish and never actually flagging you down in any conference, things like that. Definitely attended many of your talks and really appreciate all you've brought to the field. So feel very blessed to have you on here today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Before we go into anything related to the journal, your position in the journal, even just your background, I must ask, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing well, and thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Absolutely. It's truly my pleasure uh, and the listeners as well. Now, Dr. Pack, we do give a little bit of a biography before we get to the interview in each episode, but the listeners really enjoy having the guest actually provide a little background themselves about their journey to this point in their careers in sleep and circadian research. So, Dr. Pack, can you please tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research? Yeah, so, so I grew up in Scotland. I went to medical school in Glasgow. I got a PhD in mathematical modeling. 
And then I joined the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania in the primary division. I wasn't doing sleep at that time in 1976. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I was involved in studies in control of breathing. I realized that no clinical implications, very limited clinical implications. And like, like a number of people, you know, Colin Sullivan's got a very similar trajectory as I have. People like Elliot Phillips and I got involved in, in sleep apnea. And, and when I started seeing patients with sleep apnea, I realized what a difference you could make in their lives. There's lo- loads of aspects of pulmonary medicine, COPD, where you can't really do a lot. And, and here you could really change people's lives quite dramatically. So I really get very, very interested in, 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 in sleep and in sleep apnea. At that time, this was in the 1980s, um, there was three people at Penn who, you know, three, three key people. There was Adrian Morrison who did basic research. He's unfortunately deceased, David Dinges, who was in psychiatry, and me. And, and we got together in the mid-1980s, and we said, uh, sleep doesn't belong to any individual department. It's very broad. We need to make sure that we build something that's very multidisciplinary. So, so, so that was a principle that we, that we started with. In 1988, I competed for a There was these score grants. Uh, special Center of Research Grants that, that Jim Kiley had managed to push um, to establish centers to study sleep disorder breathing. Uh, three were awarded Penn, Madison with Terry Young and Jerry Dempsey, and Cleveland with Kingman Stroll and Susan Redline. So there was these three things started, and, and I thought I was doing great in 1988. In 1990, the guy who headed up the the, the pony division, which I belong to, retired. And I was the obvious heir apparent. I just got this big centre grant. I was doing well and so on. But that's not what the search committee thought. <laughs> and 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 then, then what happened was I, I spoke to the chair of the search committee. I said, look, I could argue I'm number one or two in my field and blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, that may be true, Alan, but who needs your field? <laughs> so <laughs> that was the way people looked at sleeping these days. So, so you know, it was pretty clear I wasn't going to get the job running the pulmonary division. And looking back, thank God, if I'd ended up running the pulmonary division, it would have been, it would have just been very, very destructive, or just a big administrative load. So at that time, I didn't really know what to do. I, I went and met Norman Edelman. Probably many of you don't know Norman. But Norman was on the commission with Bill Men in the Wake Up America era before the centre got started. And he at that time was the dean at Robert Wood Johnson in New Jersey. I drove up there one Friday afternoon and talked to him. He said, Alan, he said, thank God you never get that job. What a waste. He said, sleep's a great area. He said, Try to become the bell demand of your time. That's what he told me. And, and so, so at that time, I was leaving Penn. I was getting recruited to the, to the Mayo Clinic, uh, to run the thoracic research division. A new dean arrived called Bill Kelly. Uh, and Bill spoke to me and said, Alan, I want you to stay at Penn. He said, what would it take to keep you here? I said, give me my own center, my own institute. And that's what he did. So we were able at that point to parlay this. And I remember David and I writing, that David Dingy and I writing what we needed, and we delivered it to his office on a Monday morning, uh, Monday morning. And Bill was a guy who made decisions. He called me on the Wednesday. He said, I will deliver all of this. I will promote you to full professor. And, and the, center, the center was established. 
So that was how we managed to establish the first medical school-wide center in sleep of circadian research. Uh, I, I, we continued at that time. We, we hired Amir Segal. We managed to get people, recruit people, Ted Abel. We managed to convince Ted to go into sleep. It was really, it was a tremendously fun time. Terry Weaver was there. She eventually left and became dean of the nursing school in Illinois. And we were doing all of that. And then that was in the 90s. And then at the end of the 90s, the clinical program was not in great shape. Uh, I was still in Pormere. They weren't supporting me. <laughs> uh, in the clinical side, we had a six-month waiting list. Oh, it was awful. Uh, so so what happened is in the early 2000s, uh, with the support of then Chairman of Medicine, we were able to establish uh, an independent sleep division. And and so we then had a centre, which is an academic centre, which still exists. And then we had a sleep division for the clinical side. And again, the whole principle was it had to be multidisciplinary, right? In the division, there's neurologists, there's pulmonary people, there's psychiatrists, there's psychologists. So, you know, internal medicine people. So the, the whole principle was sleep doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to the people who do it. <laughs> and it's a very multidisciplinary area. So recently, you know, because I've been doing this for a long time, so I gave up, uh, I stepped down from running the division uh, from a couple, two or three years ago. Rick Swab now does it. And and then I stepped down running the centre. Amita Segal runs it, has now changed its name to the Circadian Sleep Institute. But the two structures, the division structure and the academic structure still exist. And the academic side, I reported to the dean of the medical school, and, and I got a budget from the dean. On the clinical side, it has to be the way it pen works. It has to be in a department, and it was in the Department of Medicine. But we had an agreement that faculty could come from other departments. So that's that's my history, and, and I, I think it's that that conversation that David Dinger's Adrian Morris and I had to say sleep is multi because that's what holds sleep back a lot that it's in some department, they don't want other people, so often in pulmonary, sometimes in neurology, occasionally in psychiatry, like in Stanford. And, you know, and then it, it doesn't reflect what our field is, you know? And so I think that conversation and our ability to implement it was really important. Beautifully unpacked. And honestly, I was just going to sit back for the next couple hours and let you uh, out or unpack all the history of the recent past decades of sleep as, as it's exploded on in the medical scene. And I really appreciate how you frame that. And it's a common theme that's come up quite a bit is the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary nature of sleep. And right. that's something that attracts me as well. And it's a beautiful thing about just this construct. I won't even call it a field, really. It's just this behavior that involves so many brilliant different disciplines. And if we isolate it, we're just doing harm, as you said, to the people who are doing it in many ways, right? The, the patients, all of them. Yeah. I, absolutely. You know, I mean, when I, when I started, you know, I, I was a pulmonary guy. And when I was seeing patients, I felt comfortable in sleep apnea. And, and then people would come in. But then people would come in with insomnia. You, say, <laughs> you know, I wasn't trained in that. People don't present with a diagnosis. They present with a problem. And, and you have to be able to deal with the breadth of the whole thing. And that's why I, I firmly believe that just as you have indicated, sleep is a discipline, sleep and circadian is a discipline. 
is interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and you should attract people from di with different perspectives and, and different ways of looking at it. And I think that's really key for the field. Beautifully said. And yeah, humans are really complex, right? They may show up with insomnia, but they're going to also show up with a whole other bag litany of other things. And if we can work yeah. together, we're going to provide some really quality, personalized care that ultimately benefits the individual. So I love where you're coming from there and that you built that structure. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. Now, you've done a lot. You're doing a lot. So nice. I'm always hesitant to ask this question to guests because I'm always skeptical that they have any spare time. But if you do have spare time or in your spare time, Dr. Pack, what do you like to do for hobbies and interests? Well, what I do is uh, I, I like to play golf, to be honest. I'm not good at it, but I like it. <laughs> I'm trying to get better. I've got a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement, that's for sure. <laughs> so I, did, I just spent, I'm in South Carolina, and I just spent three days playing golf. With, with We have this annual golf thing. So Jerry Barrett, who used to be the executive director of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, he was here. David White was here. And Stuart Kwan, who's now the editor of the Frontier Journal, he was here. So the four of us played golf for three days. I'm probably the worst of the four, but I enjoy it. <laughs> How remarkable. And what a what an awesome sport, uh, yeah. lifestyle, if you will. Uh, I share yeah. that as a hobby, interest, and you know, I'm just going to pretend my invitation got lost in the mail and I'll get invited <laughs> next year. Um, it's currently, currently, actually, the Ryder Cup, I believe, uh, USA versus uh, it, Britain right now. So I know the USA is not doing well. The nine, it's nine and a half Europe, two and a half uh, America, although America is ahead in three of the four matches that are currently ongoing, at least from the last time I looked. Oh, yes. It's on in the TV in my blurred background right now, for sure. Um, so that's fantastic. And uh, I wish you all the best out there. But a great sport. It's taught me a lot about um, the self, uh, how to handle right. failure, and how to talk right. with a lot of different people, too, when you randomly get paired with people on a course. Right. No, okay. And the, the key thing it teaches you is, you know, you screw up and you get angry at yourself. And you just have to blow off and, you know, you've got to stay calm. If you, if you start getting rattled, it just goes from back to worse. <laughs> well said. And I think it's an area where we can explore better from a circadian perspective and how the right. travel that these golfers are right. navigating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's data to show that, right? That if you go, I mean, if you're jet lagged and so on, you don't, you don't, you, you can see that yourself. If you don't sleep well, you, you don't play as well. I've actually reached out to Max Homa over Twitter to see if he'd let me track him for the year. He never responded. I was hopeful. I remain hopeful, but yeah. uh, <laughs> we'll put okay. a pin in that for now. Now, Dr. Pack, yeah. maybe you'll choose golfer for this one. I don't know. But if you weren't in the career you're at, then what career would you choose? I don't know. I, I can't, you know, that is hard for me to envisage. I, 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 I love the job I got. I mean, I absolutely love it. And, you know, I mean, there's some huge advantages. You feel you're making a difference. You're intellectually challenged. You know, you can, you can start a new direction, learn genetics, go in a whole new direction uh, and keep reinventing yourself. And I've reinvented myself several times. And I think that that's a lot of fun. You, you have friends all over the world. You get to travel quite a bit. 
go to meetings and, and you've got colleagues all over the world that you talk to. So I can't imagine, and, you know, I, I'm still working. I'm, I'm getting up in, up in years here. And, and my, my niece said, and, and the people in England, we were visiting them and they were saying, why are you still working? I mean, why, why don't you retire? And, and my niece in England said, you know what it is? Uncle Alan is paid for his, doing his hobby. And, and and I think that's the way that's the way I look at. I love what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. It's so much fun. It's productive, intellectually challenging, and and there's some enormous benefits. I I just can't think of something else uh, that I would do. It's wonderful to hear that, and and I share that as well. Now we're just going to cut that all out and say that you want to be a professional golfer. No, it is truly <laughs> wonderful. To, it is wonderful it's to that, hear that. If I, if I was a professional, I would that job. But you know, that's <laughs> where we end. That, I mean, that's a dream job. But I mean, I, I I'm not reaching that. <laughs> True, but you have your dream job, and anytime we can align our vocation with our passions and our hobbies, we've won. Right. So yeah, I agree with that. No, I think I think it's a one. I mean, you get a bit tired of writing brands and reviews and this and that, but I mean, that's just a necessary thing of what you have to do, and it's a challenge. Uh, so, so it's a wonderful career, and, and, and the type of career I've had has been really very fulfilling. Love it. Now, Dr. Pack, we're going to switch to one of our favorite sections, one of my favorite sections of the podcast, where we're going to play a little keyword association. And to the listeners out there, basically, I'm going to throw some terms at Dr. Pack, and he's going to respond with the first things that come to mind. And Dr. Pack has not seen this list. It's hot off the cognitive press, as we like to say. Dr. Pack, are you ready for the keyword association? Yes, I am. Whether I'm doing a good job, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm ready. <laughs> you have, you're unconstrained here. I'll, I'll set okay. that uh, framework for you. We've had people go on for a long um rambles we've had very short one word answers it's your world sound good okay all right fine with me huh all right first term scientific dissemination uh scientific dissemination i would say key journals beautiful how about this peer review challenging yes on many levels right right <laughs> And last one here, Dr. Pack, sleep and circadian research. This is a field that's really the cutting edge now. I mean, in my career, you know, I've seen the major changes uh, in sleep and circadian research. You know, when the National Center for Sleep Disorders Research was established, there was only one grant studying mice. You know, almost no genetics. Our field is now right at the cutting edge in many different areas, not just in the basic research, but you and I were talking about the application of wearables. So I would say cutting edge. Beautiful answer. And uh, I believe it was Michael Grandner who said this. I could be wrong, but uh, basically sleep health became this really popular term over the last decade. And it's now right. really about circadian health is now emerging, which I'm really excited about as we start getting into chrono medicine, chrono nutrition, all these different things and personalizing lifestyles based on individual differences in chronotype. I think it's an emerging time. And as you said, cutting edge, love that answer. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction uh, to the listeners, today's episode is a little bit different. 
as we're not focusing on a specific article from the journal Sleep or Sleep Advances. Rather, I have the privilege of sitting down with the editor-in-chief for the journal. So we're going to focus on all things the journal. And uh, we'll start by talking about the journal broadly and kind of the editorial ecosystem before taking a little bit of a deeper dive into other aspects. So Dr. Pack, I think just to kind of set a foundation for us to build upon, it might be helpful to just start off with some background on the sleep journal itself. So maybe if you could provide the listeners a lens into the history of the journal and maybe its current and future direction. Yeah, well, I mean, the journal has been around for quite a while, as you know. Uh, initially, Christian Gilliman, I think it came out of Stanford originally, and Christian Gilliman was the editor. He was editor for a very long period of time. And and then, it, then, then uh, the journal moved and it became a joint property of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the SRS. So they jointly owned it. Uh, and, and and there was editors, you know, di- different editors. Tom Roth was an editor for a while. David White was. David Dinger, you know, did it for quite a while. Uh, and and that, then what happened is when, when I was the president of the Sleep Research Society, uh, that what was happening was that we, we were losing money, right? I mean, it was published in-house. So the journal was published in-house and it was a joint property of the Academy and the Sleep Research Society. Now, the two different groups, what had happened at, at that, before that point is the Academy had started their own journal, the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, because the membership of the Academy believed that they weren't being well served by sleep. It was too, too academic. They wanted something more practical. So that's where we were. Uh, what happened when I was the president of the SRS uh, was that the 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 we as I said we were losing money because it's it was very hard to compete uh, if you're doing it in house you don't have a staff out there a sales staff you don't have any of that right and getting it into libraries and so on uh, so we then had a discussion between the two groups about outsourcing the publication uh, and so we agreed to outsource the publication. Uh, to to different you know and and we hired a consultant we 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 asked a number of different publishers to present their plans and so on and and we went out to Chicago one Saturday morning and we had the different groups giving their plans it was pretty clear that Oxford had really thought about it very carefully they had, they we everybody thought both the academy team the SRS team thought that they had done a really good job and they were the right ones and so we agreed to that. And so the meeting didn't last all day, it was supposed to, we're done by lunchtime. And we decided that, and Andy Crystal said to me, Alan, he said, we decided this, but do you think we've got the same vision as the Academy has of what this journal should be? So I, so I said, I don't think so. So I said, to, I butted out, I said, do we have the same vision for the journal? And Jerry Barrett, who was, I said, was executive director of the academy, he said, no, I don't think we do have the same vision. He said, there's only two ways to go. One is we, we each buy each other out and somebody, somebody owns the journal, right? Uh, or, or he said, we can lay our, put our vision statements out there and then we can try to, you know, harmonize them so we're all on the same page. So that's what we agreed to. The academy 
So at that time, the SRI, I kept saying to the SRS board, we have $4 million in reserves, right? We've built that up over the years. And um, our annual budget was like a million. So we, we, could, we could go for four years with no money coming in. We were in very good shape. And I kept telling the board, I said, we're not a bank. We shouldn't just be banking money. We should be investing money in our field. So, so, so then what happened is the academy stepped up and they, they, they put out their equipment uh, before we, I, I organized two subcommittees, one to work out how much money we could afford and the other to say, you know, what our vision was. So the academy said their vision was to be the leading journal, but preference should be given to articles, you know, submitted by members and preference should be given to articles with high PR value. Right, so we we said we don't think that's a scientific journal, <laughs> and, and our our thing was just to be the best scientific journal in every area worldwide. It was a very simple thing. The academy offered us three million dollars to 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 buy out the journal. Now I said to our guys, I said, look, four, we got four million. We can't be offering empty three million dollars. So we agreed that we would offer two million, and we offered two now. At the same time, we weren't spending because the Oxford deal gave you income. So the Oxford deal gave us gave us guaranteed income for five years, right? And so the, we would recoup the money. So 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 we offered the academy two million dollars, and they took it. <laughs> and so so the journal then became the property of the SRS, and that was a Jerry Barris to be commended for that. Because that was a great step forward. They had their own journal. They, they were doing their own thing. It was much more clinical. We now had a, we now, for the very first time, the SRS had something that was purely their own. Because the meeting shared, when I was the president, we started the other meeting, the one at school in Florida, and we had our own meeting. And so for the very first time, we had, we had, um, something that was our own and we had a guaranteed income stream. And, and that income stream was used to hire our own executive director, John Noel. Now there's a couple of people I think are, are fully employed. And so it really was a key step that, that moved the SRS in, into a very different place. And it allows us to think carefully, not to worry about what the clinicians think and, and the academy side, but this is, this is a journal that is it's there. It's an academic journal. It's a research journal. And it's broad, I mean, in any different area. So, so that was the history. And I, I think that piece, when we bought the journal, I think that was money very well spent by us. At least that's, that's my perspective. <laughs> I fully agree. And what a wonderful um, summary of the, the evolution and the progression and how things have evolved over time. I mean, kudos for the negotiation tactics, getting that $2 million offer in there. And yeah, just the growth of the journal over time has been really cool to see. And for me, as a clinical scientist, you know, some of my stuff does go to JCSM and I can target it there because it's clinically focused, but some of my stuff is more appropriate for sleep. So having that distinction, I think is very helpful and not having the constraints and fighting over what content is more prioritized and not those types of things, I think is very helpful for a lot of the field as well. So very awesome there. Now, has there been any sort of like 
changes, whether related to the structure or submissions that you think are worth sharing with the listeners at all? Yeah. So, 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 so when I came in, I, you know, I applied for the job and, and I committed to the search committee and to the board that what we're going to try to do, I mean, sleep is, it's got the best impact factor, but not by much, right? I mean, we're slightly ahead, but not by much. And I, I, I committed to the board and to the search committee that we would try to drive this journal up in terms of impact factor. And, and publish, you know, the very best quality stuff. And, and, and I was involved years ago in the, what's called the American Journal Respiratory Care Medicine. And I was like the deputy editor for the sleep piece. So it's an ATS journal. And when we started, we had an impact factor of 3.5, 3.6 or something like that. And in five years, we took it to over eight. The impact factor of that journal now is over 30. Right, I mean, it's it's remarkable. That is remarkable. Yeah. (laughs) No, because what happened, and we we are not there yet. But what happens is, if you start driving the impact factor up, people then say, "Oh, that's the journal to go to." So it's got a very positive feedback loop. You get because the only thing you have is the papers that come in, right? I mean, you've got no control over who submits what, and so this. So how, how, how high quality it is depends on what the authors submit. And in some areas, sleep is maybe number one or number two in people's list. In other areas, it's number four or five. You know, it's sleep disorder, breathing. You go to the Blue Journal, chest, European Journal, thorax, and sleep is number five. So, so but once you, once you get this thing going up, then you attract better, better, uh, you know, higher quality paper. So that's what we're trying to do. Now, there are techniques that you can use, and it's a bit of a game, but there are things you can do to help to help in that. So the first thing is publish a lot of editorials because, because editorials don't count as articles, but they make it citations. And so the positive citations, but they don't count as articles. So, so we've started that. We've published now about seven editorials per issue. So typically what happens is that the reviewers, and then you send them an email and you say, would you be willing to write an editorial? And almost invariably, okay, maybe 10% of the time people say, I'm too busy. But most times people do it and they do a really good job. And I think the editorials are really helpful, not just to drive up the impact factor, but they encapsulate what that paper was about. They put it in perspective. And, and so we, 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 we brought in editorials. The other thing we did is we, and a lot of journals have done this, is you bring in research letters. So these are very short reports. And again, they do, they can generate citations, but they're not counted as articles. And you keep the number of words under 1,500, right? So, 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 so we brought in, we, we made two things to do that. The other thing I, I really believe is that the, the journal should be a place. Not just, I mean, original research is very, very important. It's, it's really the rock in which the whole thing is built. But you, you want to have the journal a place where scientific discussion goes on in our field, right? So, so we brought in two new types of articles. We brought in a, a, what's called a perspective. It's not meant to be, you know, just a big meta-analysis review type thing. It's meant to be, here's my perspective. Here's the data. 
Here's what I think. We just published one recently, for example. Ron Greenstein in Australia approached me and talked to me about putting one together and uh, about the role of GLP-1 agonists, you know, in sleep apnea or obese. But uh, uh, where's that all going? And, and his argument there is, given that we're, a lot of people with sleep apnea, they're really, it's a consequence of their obesity. Sleep, sleep, sleep physicians need to become obesity physicians, right? You, you need to treat the fundamental, and you've got this, this amazing stuff, these GLP-1 agonists. So we do publish perspectives. We, 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 people can submit them. They can say, I'm going to, they send me an email. They say, I'd like to put a perspective together. They give me a brief outline. Other ones, we've invited people to do it. So we're inviting. So, you know, I'm publishing probably one perspective, something like that, uh, per issue. So we have a lot of editorials. We have research letters with perspectives. We also introduced a different type of article called the pro-con debate. So we did, there's a pro piece, it's a statement, a con piece. We share them with the other people. They write their bottles and we publish all. We publish two separate articles. The pro article, which would be their statement, the rebuttal, and the con article. We've got another one of them in the works at the moment. So we brought in some new, new article types. Uh, a lot, I said a lot of editorials perspectives, research letters, pro-con debates, and trying to make the journal a place that is really, you know, thinking about the future, trying to give perspectives of where we're going and to try and encourage scientific debate. So we have made a few, a, a good lot of changes. Now, whether that is, is effective in terms of driving the impact factor, time will tell, because you, we, you, it's, the impact factor is based on what happened two years ago. So... So it takes a while to see, what, are we doing the right thing or not? I don't know. That's remarkable. And just the strategy that goes in and the intentionality is really cool to hear. So I love the depth of what you shared there and the angles in which you're approaching this. And yeah, I started seeing those pro-con debates show up in the emails that were coming out. And I was like, wait, what is this? This is awesome. Um, <laughs> so at least you have one fan overtly here. Okay. And if people want, and, and we, we say to people, you know, I mean, the, the current pro-con debate that we just got the, 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 we had the pro maybe last week and the con just came in on Friday, was suggested by somebody. They sent me an email and said, they think it would be really helpful to our field to do this pro-con debate. What do you think? So we're open to people sending in ideas, you know, pro-con debates. We have, we have a thing called a forum where we can make a, you know, we, we, we published one of them, which was it, somebody sent me an email about an article that appeared in Science and they said it was pretty controversial. So we had five different people wrote a commentary on that article and it was all published together. Uh, so stuff like that. And we're open to people sending in ideas. If you think, I mean, as I said, the, the one in the GLP agonist was Ron Greenstein sent me an email. He laid out what he was going to do. I said, great. Now, they're all peer reviewed. I mean, we have, we have had perspectives that we've rejected. Uh, you know, if they, if they don't pass peer review, there's issues. Because every one of these, I mean, they could, they, I, I tell them, you know, look, go ahead. But you remember, whether we accept it or not is going to depend on peer review. So we don't publish stuff. It's not peer reviewed. And that's the way it should be, right? And right, right. I, I don't know if it exists anymore, but um, 
I love that there's always an ever-changing landscape on the types of submissions available because there was an initiative in the past where there was like a trainee-specific like journal club, and it actually allowed me to, one, get published in sleep, which was awesome, but right. help a, an undergraduate RA kind of see the manuscript submission and peer review process. And I will say that was actually one of my harder peer reviews I've ever <laughs> been through, and I did not expect that. So um <laughs> Yeah, right, nobody right. gets through unscathed on that front. Right, right, right. But really cool to hear. And, you know, what was really interesting to me, Dr. Pack, is as I was preparing for this episode, I went to the journal page and started playing around. And I was just looking at the editorial board and I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And it's this really big community of individuals, clearly, that contribute to the functionality of the journal and the editorial process. And you know, I think it would just be helpful maybe to provide a little bit of a lens into what that ecosystem looks like and also like what your role as editor-in-chief serves in this ecosystem. No, I think that's a good good question, and I'll talk about the editorial board as part of that. So basically what happens is when an article is submitted to sleep, right, the first thing that happens is Oxford has staff, right, There's the staff that work for Oxford, to help manage the journal, right? The managing editor type of thing. So they go through the whole thing and they try to make sure that all the pieces are there and, you know, there's nothing missing. They may send it back to authors. And and recently, uh, we, we changed the, the rules, essentially, to bring us up to date for clinical trials. You know, there's, there's a whole set of concert rules and so on. And, and so we tell them, you know, to make sure that all of that's there. If it's a clinical trial, make sure that's there. Now, sometimes they miss that, and we need to pick it up. But but the first step is for them to check it. Once they, they, they believe they have the thing intact, then they assign it to me, and it appears on my dashboard as, as the editor, right? Now, I can do a, a few things with it. We have three deputy editors. I can do all of this on my own. So David Gazal, he's a, he's a senior deputy editor. He's been doing this for a while. He handles sleep disorder, breathing, some of the pediatric stuff and so on. Katie Stone, who you'll probably know, she does a great job. She does all the epidemiology. And then Antoine Amantidis, who's in Switzerland, he does basic research. So I've got three deputy editors. So when I you say I log into the journal website, and there's eight articles for me to deal with, right? We've got a lot of articles. So, so I would then assign some of these articles to them. So I then transfer the editorship of these articles to one of the deputy editors. The other ones I handle myself. Now, the deputy editors, they don't, I don't make the decisions in these ones. The deputy editors, they, they're authorized just to make their own decisions, okay? So, so, so whether it's them or me, the next step is to get an associate editor, right? And so we then have associate editors. And we get very good associate editors. And we try to make sure that the associate editors we have cover the areas in which the journal is receiving submissions. You know, for example, in, in the insomnia area, we have Phil Gehrman, we have Chris Drake, we, we've got Van Summeren. And I used to find someone and we get Charles Martin. So we got four people who will handle insomnia stuff. And then, and then what I then do is I then, I handle the insomnia because obviously that's not in the deputy editor. 
I had all the neurological and, and all of that. And so then I would assign it to an associate editor, right? Uh, so I, don't do, I would assign it to an associate editor. Now, the next step, and that's where it's really hard, that's all easy, right? I assign it to Phil or Trips Trade, whatever it is. That's easy. I just do clicks and on Scholar One, sends them an email, copies me in the email, we're good to go. Um, but then the next step is really hard. And that's the thing that's really changed. When I did the Blue Channel, maybe over 15 years ago, something like that, it, it wasn't that hard. Getting reviewers is really, really tough. It's an incredibly tough thing, getting reviewers. Um, and sometimes we have to uh, send out stuff to eight, eight reviewers to end up getting two. And and sometimes now, you know, after, after several weeks, I've only got one review. And I, t I say to the AEs, look, if you, we've only got, we, we don't want to hold this thing up. We don't want to be a place of stuck there and then get rejected after three months. That's not a good thing. So I tell them, look, if you, you've only got one review, I watch them. I, I can see on my website, I can see where we're at, overdue, and this and that. And, and, and I can email them and I can say, look, you know, can you go with this one review? Do a review yourself or something and, and, and go forward. Uh, so getting reviewers is really challenging. We've done two things to deal with that, okay? Uh, and one is working pretty well. The other, we, you know, it's a work in progress. So the, the first thing we did is we bought this software. Uh, from, some company makes this software, and, and, and it's on our website, the Scholar One website. So when the article comes in, it go it gives you a list of all the potential reviewers who, who you know, checks out what they did, how many reviews they did, and what their areas are. And it gives you a list of potential reviewers. Uh, so that's good. And then and then the AEs can click that list, can, can go to that list and do it. The other thing uh, I read is the editorial board is supposed to be the place that the reviewers are. There are people committed to the journal and they're doing the thing. Uh, and and they're, you know, they're very committed, they're willing to review and so on. So so when I became an editor. I did an analysis of our editorial board. It tended to be more senior people. And, and you know, and, and I asked the question of Oxford, tell me what percentage of articles did the edit people on the editorial board decline to review? We had one person who was batting 100%, never, never accepted a single invitation. <laughs> That's not who you need, right? That's not who you need. And, and and so what I did is I said, I'm not going to play politics here, choose this one, that one. I'm going to just do it, you know, scientifically. So I drew the line at 50%. I said, if you'd, you'd decline more than 50% of the invites, I was going to thank you for your service. On the other hand, if you thought very strongly that you need to stay, um, then, you know, that's fine. We'll have a conversation. Two people did. They said they really were going to step up. And I, I reappointed them to editorial board, the rest left. And then what I did is I asked the AEs to give me names of people who were more junior, who, who would really commit to doing reviews. And, and I, we basically appointed almost all of them. And I did individual Zooms with them, with a lot of work, and, and said to them, now you remember, your job is to review. Can you do one a month or one every two months, something like that? And you've got to decline as few as you can. And, 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 you know, and that's how, that's how the editorial board get this bigger. I shrunk the AEs because, you know, 
if you get people handling only a few papers, it's very hard to say whether they're doing a good job or a bad job because there's not enough end to make a judgment, right? So I shrunk the AE. When David Dinges was doing it, there was like 95 associate editors. Huge. Uh, we're down to about 20 now, something like that. So you want the AEs handling enough manuscripts that you know you can see whether they're doing a good job or not. Uh, but the editorial board, uh, I think, it, it, I don't see any reason to constrain that number. Now, the, the challenge we have, and, and you know, is that the... The, the, in, in the systems in Scholar 1, when we find reviewers, we can't specifically get a list of people on the editorial board. That's not possible at the moment in that software. So we have a, John Noel built a separate um, searchable database of our, of our editorial board. So you can put search terms in and it'll tell you who, who, who who's relevant. So that's what we're doing. Now the editorial board is still a bit of a work in progress. But I, th- I think it was really getting frustrating to the AEs. So they, they were they were telling me, so much, I'm done with this, you know, <laughs> trying to bang away and get people. And, and that's that's where people can really be helpful. We need reviewers. That's the key thing. People, reviewers who do great reviews, they do it quickly. Um, and uh, and you know, and that's the most challenging part of the job. It's true for all journals. It's a, it's an industry wide problem at the moment. Uh, just getting reviewers. Yeah, and I think those are beautiful kind of additions and changes to potentially benefit the issue in play, this peer review crisis, if you will. Right. And, you know, I've I've talked about it previously on my social media channels and such. I try and do my best, right? I try and do one a month is like the quota I try and hit. If there's another interesting paper that comes in that I feel eager to do, I'll try and tackle that too. But I think there's so many layers of the crisis. It's about finding reviewers. And to me also, it's about the quality of the review. And there's a spectrum here. And I don't think there's data, if you will, being kept on which reviewers may be affording more time than others or providing more comprehensive reviews. And, and that just seems like a stuck point. Um, and I, I think yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And it's this ever, there's just like these this big complex problems. So I guess. You know, I wasn't actually expecting to go this direction, but since we went through organically, do you foresee this peer review process changing in any capacity? Well, the journal, they talk about that. I mean, the, the whole peer review will change. It's a broken system and, and so on. Um, you know, I, I don't see it changing in the next couple of years. I mean, what we've tried to do is maybe put a band-aid in the problem. But, you know, I mean, I keep saying, and what the other thing about you saying you do one a, one a month and all that is you have to decide which journals you're going to do, going to, going to be, you know, you have to say, I'm going to be a supporter of sleep or whatever the journal is. And you're going to do it, right? You know, if I get a thing from the blue journal to do, I, I do it, right? Because it's a great journal. You, you feel you can continue to make that really good. Now, if I get someone from Frontiers, I just decline all of them, right? And, and so, I think you can't, people need to make a decision about which journals they're, they're, they're really going to try to support because if they support them, it's in their interest. Because if you review and the reviews go well, you get better quality papers. And one of the reasons that we're trying to get this impact factor up is that I still think that sleep underperforming, right? I mean, if you look at five, six or something like that, I mean, 
if you look at that, if you look at the blue, the pulmonary journal at 30, right? <laughs> Circulations like whatever it is. But you know, and, and that's important when it comes to promotion committees, because promotion committees look not at the impact of often not at the impact of your own work, but they look at the impact of the article, the, the journals are you're publishing it. So it's in our interest, it's an entire field's interest to have a leading journal. Uh, and and that's what we we are, but but not by a long way. I mean, obviously, sleep medicine reviews because review reviews get more citations than original articles, so it's got a much higher impact factor than us. But in terms of original articles, sleep is the best, but not by a long way. If we can get this up, we'll get better quality articles. It'll be in everybody's interest um, when it comes to promotions. And so I do think people need to make a decision about which journals are they really going to work to support? Now, you're right about the the quality of the reviews. At the moment, what we're trying to do, you've been heavily focused in just making the machinery work, right? You know, get, getting the tools to AEs, getting the reviews, and trying to do this in a timely fashion. Now, we have driven down the time to decisions. Not a long way, but we have done a better job at that. And I monitor that constantly. I'm emailing people saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? The AEs and and, and so on. So we're driven that down. Uh, and you're right. The next thing we need to do is we need to start really doing uh, and, and it's something we need to develop, which is a, a kind of review of the reviewers. And, and, and if they're very late and they just don't do crap, if they do a crappy review, we've got to get these people when when I did it with the blue journal, we did that, and then we put we, we had we had people who you could immediately ask and review. You could people who were in the in the penalty box, and 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 the, and the editor had to approve you sending it to them, and then you had people who were out of the out of the stadium, never right. So so you're right. I mean we need we but we we're we're not at that point. We've got to get the get the thing going, and you know. Maybe in the next six months, that's got to be a, a, an initiative of ours if we can make the thing work better. The whole, the whole associate, the whole editorial board thing is only maybe six months ago we we added all these something like that. So, and then we got that software. So we are there's not as many complaints now from associate editors about finding new reviewers. I think I think it's working better. And then the other thing is that the associate editors have their own favorite reviewers, if you like. So so what will happen is that they're really stuck. They'll go to, you know, you or somebody to say, they know you'll deliver and they'll send you an email. And, and so so I think I think the machine the, the the process is improving, but it's still very challenging. Yeah, there's just so many competing factors and just dynamics that don't align well. I mean, especially the other factor is like in this new era of life, we want to call it as we've all emerged from this pandemic in some ways, you know, still lingering around, but there's been perspective changes and people want to have more work-life balance and even academics who we often sacrifice our time for free don't necessarily want to do that as much anymore. Right. Well, well, they they think about it and they say, you know, the author's making money. Why am I doing this for free? And, and I think it's very important to realize, and I, I think we've got to get that story out there, that the Sleep Research Society benefits enormously from this. The, the funds that Oxford, I think the contract was renewed for another five years. And, and so the funds 
that the Sleep Research Society gets from Oxford, right, is key to maintaining the society. Pays for the executive director, pays for that. Because, you know, because the, the sources of income that the SRS had was membership fees, which are not huge. Uh, you know, the, the, the money they made at the annual meeting with the academy. And that was about it, right? That was, that was a source of the revenue. Now they've got an independent source of revenue. It doesn't come through the academy. It comes from the journal from Oxford. And we continue to do a good job with Oxford. They seem pretty happy with what we're doing. And, and, and you know, and that, so real, people need to realize this is not Oxford making a bold right? The, 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 this is what's funding the SRS to, to do all the other things that it does, the lobbyists and all the other things. So, so this income the SRS gets from the journal is very, very important for the society, for us and for our field. Beautifully said. And so maybe what we need is a large-scale rollout of cognitive therapy to help the scientists <laughs> resolve the dissonance they're experiencing and recognize that their time is well spent towards maybe not direct compensation for themselves, but science as a whole, and also indirect benefits for them downstream through the society and things Absolutely. like that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the whole lobbying effort, which I think has been pretty effective for the SRS, uh, you know, I think if they want uh, people want other things for the SRS to do, they should, you know, lobby the board and say, look, we think it'd be very important to do X and Y. And, 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 and they have the resources now to do stuff, not huge resources, but they've got independent resources that they never had before because of the journal. Beautifully said. And, you know, one thing that came to mind from my end, still being a trainee, maybe one day I'll emerge from the trainee title. I don't know. But right. um, one thing that came to I'm mind, sure um, hopefully, uh, dissertations defended, but whatever, I'm still here. You know, maybe it just kind of popped in my head and it's a nice transition to where we we're going to go anyways. But do you see a world where there may be like a minor league system of editors, like a training for trainees within the editorial board, and you can like cultivate an army of reviewers that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a great idea. But I mean, they have this, I mean, when I took over, there was this idea of a mentor review, right? And, and, and certainly uh, you see that, they, they, they notify, the, you know, you put it to a reviewer, they, they get a, one of the trainees to help and they acknowledge that in the thing and we acknowledge that. Uh, you know, I, I think that I, I think there's a lot of it. I mean, when when we when we changed the editorial board, right? I mean, it, as I said, it was a lot of very senior people who weren't doing much. It was a flagship. There wasn't really a a lot of working bees, right? Uh, and we changed that, so we got more, much more junior people on there. And really, you know, that I I think what I need to do is have a, you know, we we we've pulled data on. The, the editorial board, right, recently, you know, how many articles were they been asked to review, how many were they declining and so on. Now, quite a number of them are not going to ask to review because they, they, because they, there's not a tremendous connect between the associate editors and them, right, and somehow we have to work at that. And and, then, and I may need to shrink the editorial board a bit. People are not asking them. There's no point in, in continuing that. And, and I'm sure they would agree with that. And then I need to do a Zoom or something with the editorial board and talk about how do we get trainees involved. Trainees can be involved in many ways. I mean, they can really help with reviews. The, the, what we find, um, if I send an email, let's say there's a reviewer and 
when, when one of the deputy editors says they're accepting a paper, I immediately review, send them an email and say, should we get an editorial? And they always invariably say yes. And I then say, who should we get? And then they tell me one of the reviewers. Now, then we send an email to the, the reviewer and say, would you want to write an editorial? They may come back and say, yeah, I can do it, but can I involve somebody else? And I, I think that's another place that trainees and maybe we can encourage the reviewers to think about that when they write the editorials to, to do the editorial with a trainee and, um, you know, and, and them is what we've got. Now, occasionally, I'll get an email from people saying, I don't think this article is worth an editorial. I'll say, well, why are we publishing it? <laughs> well, if it, in my view, if it's not worth an editorial, maybe we shouldn't be publishing it, right? That's fair, yeah. Because it turns out, if you look at, if you look at the citations and you do the breakdown of citations for articles, 24% of the articles we publish in sleep never get cited. No, zero citations. That kills you in the, in the impact factor. So one of the things we're doing is we're pulling all the articles. It, it, I, I, I think sleep is basically a journal with different groups, right? I mean, there's a whole insomnia behavioral group, there's neurological groups, the sort of breathing, basic research, circadian, all of them. So what I'm doing, now in many places, the way that would have worked is there'd been a single AE for each of these areas, it was too much work. So I'm saying, let's organize it in groups. And, and then, and then you know, we're, what we're doing at the moment is we're pulling all the data as a, as a trial run in insomnia, behavioral, sleep medicine. And then I'm going to do a Zoom with all of the AEs, I mean, four or five in that area. And then we're going to look at the articles and we're going to look at the ones that had zero citations. Well, what were they? What was the characteristics? And then the publisher I talked about the other day there from Oxford said, you know, that, that, that exercise and looking at the, the ones that are not cited is a helpful exercise. But she said, it's only going to work if you do some sort of analysis and flag the ones that, are, you know, the, you know, the low, low novelty or some of that, right? Uh, you know, and, and then try and understand that. So, I, and I believe that building the, the journal so that the people who do insomnia and, and behavioral, they, they should they should think about, we own a piece of this journal and it's up to us to make it better. I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, and I think we've, we've discussed having lead AEs and they, they may, I'm hoping that when we get, divide them into groups and we have discussions with them, um, you know, they'll step up and do their own, regular meetings and say, well, we could do a perspective in this and we could do a pro-con in that. And, and, they, and they take responsibility for their piece of the journal. I think that could be a very helpful thing. I totally agree. And it is so surprising, startling, if you will, to hear that 24%, one-fourth nearly of the um, accepted yeah. papers don't get a citation. I hold this journal with such yeah. prestige. That doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me at all, right? It means we're not doing a great job at the picking. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Um, but I love the analytic intention to try and figure out right. if there's any shared similarities and can we improve the process there. Sounds like a nice qualitative study in some capacity. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, what, what a publisher tells us is that editors are pretty good, at, you know, associate editors and editors are pretty good identifying papers are not going to get cited. They're not very good at talking about papers like a huge number of citations. I mean, if you actually take a look and we, we do look at that, you know, what, which articles do we have got, got a load of citations? It turns out that in the last, you know, the last analysis they did, that two of the nine, whatever it was, were reports of workshops, SRS workshops, right? So, so the SRS, and that, that's known in other journals, you know, the Academy, if, if they have clinical guidelines, they get very heavily cited. Now, we don't, we don't have that, but we don't want that. I mean, we, we, but we can have, you know, workshops and report. I mean, there's a, there's a new report that we're, it's in peer review at the moment. It's an SRS document on wearables, you know, what's the standards, this and that. And, and it's a pretty long document. That may be our next podcast episode, just saying. Yeah, well, well it's getting peer reviewed. Just wait. I think we've got one back and there's two other people who agreed to review it, which is good. And, and then we should do it. But they, they, they were getting cited. Commentaries were getting cited. So, so, you know, it's that type of thing that drives up the citations. And, and what we need to do is to make sure that the original articles, that, that, that we're not publishing a lot of stuff that doesn't get cited. That's what we need to be doing. Well said. And I have a conflict of interest that I may be on that state of science wearables paper. Uh, that, okay. <laughs> and, it, and it likely will be the episode following this one. So great, great job planting the teaser. I read it. It's a, a very comprehensive document. That's for sure. Yeah. Shout out to Max and the team. Really well done there. And, uh, Thank you for organically planting the teaser for our December episode. Well done there, Dr. Pack. I know you are in alignment with me. Um, And just to kind of put a pin on the trainee thing, and then we'll start to land our plane for the episode here. You know, I still, I think it'd be really cool if like the SRS, if there was some organizational call to the community of trainees, like, hey, are you interested in getting involved with the journal? We're starting this like, peer review bullpen, if you want to call it, or training model, and you work Mm -hmm. with maybe some of the editorial board, if you're interested, submit your SRS number, ID, whatever, your stage and training, your areas of expertise, and maybe your CV or just like your articles to kind of substantiate that you have some knowledge here. And the reason I think this is interesting is from a trainee, we may not have Mm -hmm. the same level of expertise. Some of us do in some areas relative to more senior individuals, but we may not, but we have the energy. And I think we also have the time yeah, I agree with that. and the pressure. Like I feel pressure to do a good peer review. Like that's something that right. I'm not maybe dissipates over time. And so I think it's a very valuable resource there. Yeah, no, I know I have to agree with that. And I, I think that these are good ideas and I think we should follow through and really think carefully about how we get the trainees more engaged with the journal. Um, and and then I, as I said, the editorial board, as you said, is suddenly going from, from a flagship to this huge number of people, and, and we need to probably trim that back a bit and and go forward. And then how do we connect that editorial board to this trainee structure? I think would be very very key. And and, and then you know, and then when, when we maybe what we should do is when we invite the reviewers. I mean, we have a standard thing now. I mean, we handle, I get an admin guy at Penn who does this for me. And and so when, when we get the, the invite, the 
we don't we, we don't use the Oxford people for that because we just want to stay on top of it ourselves <laughs> and make sure we move it along. Uh, we, we copy them. I mean, we tell them that we copy them in every email. There's a website they can go to and see the whole thing. So we're not keeping them in the dark or anything like that. But, but you know, when we send out to somebody to say, would you write an editorial? I can add a sentence to that or a couple of sentences to say, you know, and we're very open to the idea you do this with a trainee or something like that. And, 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 that, and stimulate them to do that. Some of them do that. But maybe, you know, they, they, they send an email back and they say, could we get a co-author or a trainee or something like that? I, I can actually put that in the letter that goes to the email that goes to them, inviting them, encouraging them to do that. And that's another way to get the trainees involved. Well said. And I think that'll land kind of our deeper dive into the topics. Before I let you go back to, I would say more important things, but that's not fair. This is really important. Before I get let you go back to the Ryder Cup. Uh, I do have one final question. Some people think it's the hardest question I throw at them. Uh, The gloves are coming off for this one. But before I ask it, I just want to thank you again for your time, Dr. Pack. This has been awesome. Um, You're a wealth of knowledge. Your personality is great. I think this episode is going to be of high interest to the listeners. Um, You know, put that high interest to the readers of the journal comment that I do in my uh, cover letter to the editor, basically right there. But the final question for you, Dr. Pack, if you were afforded unlimited funding, no constraints, don't have to worry about time, you know, IRBs there, but you can do whatever research you want in the space of sleep and or circadian science, what would you investigate? Well, I, I, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, basically, you know, there's two things that I'm doing. And one, you know, the first thing I believe is, and you mentioned this earlier, is that personalized stuff is really, really important, right? And, and, and but it's not just personalized. It's, you know, because one of the things, we just got a program project, which is called P4 Medicine, right? And, and P4 Medicine was developed by Leroy Hood out in, in Seattle. And there's four P's, okay? The first P is prediction. The second P is prevention. The third P is personalized if you get the disease. And the fourth P is participation. We are now at a point where we should be able to predict, you know, for example, sleep disorder breathing. We should be able to predict who's going to get sleep disorder breathing. And then we need to start thinking about preventing. Or what would we do? Use the GLP-1 agonists or use intraoral devices, whatever it is, and prevent them. But long before they get the hypertension and all the other stuff. So that, so in the clinical arena, that's where I believe I, I'd love to continue to build that. In the basic arena, I think the big question is really the functions of sleep. What's this all about? Why do we do it? And, you know, I believe it's fundamental molecular thing that, you know, you get these molecular changes, DNA repair, whatever it is. And, and, and one of the things that we have now with all the different model systems. So we've got fish, we've got flies, we've got everything. So it really that question, you know, and what is the sleep homeostatic drive? So what is sleep homeostasis? What are the functions of sleep that probably tied together? That would be the area that I really want to to continue to to work on. 
on the clinical arena is moving sleep medicine from treating disease to preventing it. I love all of that. And now we've just opened a can of worms for another five hours of discussion. Uh, But I I fully support you in all those missions. And I'll have to reach out to you to talk more about sleep homeostasis as with my work in idiopathic hypersomnia and slow waves. It's something that I think about quite a lot and the functions of sleep. um, People always ask, what is the function of sleep, right? If there's ever a way to distill it down to a singular function, my mind will be blown. But I support your mission on that front, too, if you could do that. Yeah, I do. I, I, you know, people like David Raisin believe that there's a core function. I don't believe that. I believe that there are functions of sleep and the brain does certain. And I, and I don't think it's just for the brain. I think it's for the periphery. And, and, and you got a downtime and everybody's doing what, what they need to do to get ready for the next day type of thing. That sounds kind of trivial. But, but I don't believe there's a single core function. I believe there are functions. But I also believe that these functions will go across all these different species. Right, DNA repair, you know, there's, there's data in fish and so on. The, the, you know, you, you, you get DNA damage during wakefulness, you repair it during sleep. Uh, you know, that's, and I think that you can see that in mice, you can see that in, in fish. So I, I do think that the functions will be found in different, you know, they'll be, they'll be the same functions in different species. Beautiful. And, Perhaps this is just an indicator that we have to have you back on in the future, maybe a recurring guest in the future. Who knows? Oh, thank you for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to talk about the journal and how you guys can really help us. And obviously, we need to build structures to get you more involved. And I think that's going to be something we're going to do. Absolutely. So on behalf of the Sleep and Circadian community out there, Dr. Pack, I really have to thank you for not just this interview, but all your efforts in the field, in medicine, and serving these roles on the editorial board and helping this journal become what it is and grow further. Like, truly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll go back and see how we're doing the night up top. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Okay, thanks a lot. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee, for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.